Tiger here with Michael Apalusa and Joe Alvarado. And today we are very fortunate to have the uh, Medical Education Evaluation and Assessment Manager, Dr. Anis McGinnis, with us. Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. So, um, we want to cover a couple different topics with you, uh, but the first of which could be your role here. Um, and everyone kind of knows you from our class as the person who leads the focus groups. So if you could talk about, I guess, like I said, your role and then what those focus groups entail. Well, that's mostly where you guys see me as students is you're gonna see me as during the focus groups. And you also probably hear from me a lot when you get your surveys, which I know you guys dread getting in your emails. <laughs> every week. Uh, every week, they're <laughs> coming from me. Um, but basically my role here is to collect assessment evaluation data, kind of like my title says. So I collect the information that comes in from weekly surveys that you guys get. And I know that you get one every other week in respect to your specific modules. Um, but you also get like end of module surveys and you get um, PBL surveys and you get all kinds of wonderful surveys that are so much fun to fill out. Um, but all that data basically comes to me and I evaluate the data and send it out to individuals so we can start to make changes and improve different modules and different aspects of the School of Medicine. And we kind of use the focus group data in the same way. Um, we select a group of students to come in every week to sit down and talk for a while. Um, and I kind of call them like therapy sessions almost because it's your, you, the chance for the students to vent and kind of let everything out and just tell me what's going on because I'm a qualitative researcher by nature, which means I kind of want to hear the stories behind the numbers and that's kind of what I get from the focus groups is because the numbers are only going to tell me so much. And even though we have great comments sometimes and people are thorough with their comments, sometimes I want to ask like, well, why? Can you expand on that? Can you tell me a bit more? So we feed you during the focus groups, which is always appreciated, I think. <laughs> we give you pizza. Um, and I think that's why most people are like anxious to get there because they're hungry. Um, college students usually are. But um, yeah, so we try and bring you in, get information from you, and that data gets passed on to the administrators. And again, it's to improve the module. Like for example, if there's something that needs to be addressed right away that comes up in a focus group or in your surveys, I go up to the module co-directors or the module director and I tell them, look, the students are kind of saying this about the module, is there something we can change before next week comes to kind of improve things? Or they improve things in the long run because it's longitudinal, not just week to week. Okay. And those those students participate in each in the focus group each week, those are randomly selected? They are randomly selected. Every semester we kind of switch up who's in the focus group so it won't be the same people because having done, fo I, even before I was at the School of Medicine, I did focus groups for a living and um, if you have different people, you get to t you tend to get different dynamics because if it's friends, sometimes they're communicating with each other silently and they don't mm -hmm. say things out loud, but I see them kind of glance at each other like, I want to say something, but I'm not going to say something. Or people that are uncomfortable with each other might not communicate as well within the same group. So we try to change up the groups every semester so they switch up a bit. And how often do students participate in them? Um, focus groups, usually you'll be called to do two, maybe three a semester, usually no more than that, and they usually take place on Fridays. We definitely try not to schedule them during weeks when you guys have exams, just because we don't want to take up your time when there's you need to study. Um, we've also learned not to schedule them right after an exam, because then the whole focus group tends to be <laughs> about the exam. The exam. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I need sure. to let it out now, so <laughs> we, we kind of try and play with the calendar a bit as to when we schedule them. And they're about one hour long. About one hour but we've had some go as long as two two and a half hours wow. because students really I think they really see it as that chance I 
somebody's listening yeah. and that's kind of what I try and like I tell you guys I try and keep my door open because if you're not comfortable saying something within a focus group you can also come to my office at any time or email me and just talk to me in private or whatever but yeah sometimes I think students do need that venting session and just somebody that's going to hear them out so I guess before we get into like more specifics about the focus groups and a little more personal you know information about you um I just have been a little confused about your role and Dr. Stark's role because we had a previous podcast where we touched on focus groups and surveys mm -hmm. with Dr. Stark. So could you kind of clarify the differences between you, you and her uh, right. as well, far as your role? Dr. Stark is an associate dean. Um, so she is my boss, right? And mm -hmm. she used to do um, the focus groups before I came mm -hmm. along. But of course, as you guys probably know, Dr. Stark has a lot of things on her plate and I think more responsibility is coming her way so even though um, she usually might suggest topics to bring up in the focus group because she's heard things in other meetings that I might not be privy to um, or she the data goes to her and she communicates it to the other leaders within the School of Medicine Okay, so you're the one that's actually executing the focus groups. Exactly, I execute the focus groups. I'm the one that, that actually goes through all the data that comes in through the surveys and then analyzes that and passes it on. Okay. Joy, what was your experience like in focus group? And then I'll talk about mine also. Sure, um, I like the focus groups a lot. Um, I think it's great to fill out your opinions on a survey, but it's even better to be face-to-face -face with somebody and mm -hmm. have a conversation. Right. Um, they were usually really honest I mean, I think some people in the beginning were a little worried about confidentiality, which is something that maybe you could speak uh, right. with before the end of the podcast because, you know, you're in there and you have someone asking you, how is this class going? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it, it causes a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of emotions going on. Yeah. And um, I found that, you know, through, through focus groups, through time, people were a lot more open, a lot more honest, and I got a lot out of it. I really enjoyed it. But what about you, Michael? How did you feel? Yeah, I think I think what you said about it being a venting session is is very very true, and it's it's kind of cool that you don't get to pick or you don't necessarily know who's going to be in your focus group. You do, but you don't you don't pick it. It's not someone. It's it might not be people that you normally hang around with or you, you normally vent to. So you hear problems that are happening with other students that you might not know about, mm -hmm. and it just makes you, I guess, more aware. And it's also like you said, Joy speaking to somebody about the problem instead of filling out a form on uh, via your email or something, you know that although the survey is going to you and you are seeing it, like when you can physically see that you're telling someone about it, it feels like it, it is more likely to be mm -hmm. uh, addressed. It's not disappearing into the ether, exactly. right? Yeah. <laughs> Here's with 50 other comments. Yeah, I exactly. Yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, and uh, the thing is, addressing the confidentiality, because we can go ahead and go into that, I try and make sure that, well, usually students are pretty good with each other about confidentiality, but I do try and tell you guys at the beginning of the focus groups, like, if you aren't comfortable talking in front of the group, you can come to my office. Um, and I've had several students, but luckily now that I've been here a few months, I think at the beginning you guys were a little bit hesitant, like, mm -hmm. who is this new person? And she's just asking us a lot of things. <laughs> um, but students have felt more comfortable contacting me either via email or I've gotten even phone calls or I've gotten students that come by my office and just stop by to talk and because they don't feel comfortable mentioning it in front of other students or there's something else going on that they want to keep more confidential. And I'm, I totally believe in confidentiality. Um, I'm very, very careful about that just because I don't even look at your surveys like who filled out what, even though that is something I could really dig 
deep and get to that if I wanted to. I just want you guys to feel like you could put it out there and it's not going to come back to you. You know what I mean? Um, so I try and, like I say, I keep that confidentiality in place as much as possible and make it possible for you guys to feel comfortable either doing it in a group setting the way we do in focus groups or coming to me to talk to me personally about issues that might be going on. And to my, from my understanding, the reason they're not 100% like absolute, they, they are confidential, but the only reason that you can see uh, certain things is because you know you have to know who has done it and who has not. Right. So that's um, the only reason that you completion. use people. Exactly. It's yeah. more to keep, see who, like you guys have probably gotten, like you get the emails from me like, hey, a reminder, your survey is due. And I try and make them as cheerful as possible. But, and I make it yellow so it's like bright and happy. Um, but uh, yeah, it's mainly to keep track of who's done it or not. The reason that we... And there is something called survey fatigue. It's very real in research. And I know you guys probably suffer from survey fatigue because you get so many surveys. But LCME requirements do require that we collect certain evaluation data from our students. And this is something that happens across all medical schools where you have to fill out evaluations almost on a weekly basis. Unfortunately, um, you guys probably have to do more often just because you're a smaller class mm -hmm. and it's not like we can alternate like a class of 250 like at UTESCA. Um, they, they, they get it every four weeks where you guys get it every other week because you're such a small group. Um, but yeah, we have to keep track because it's also part of the professionalism to make sure that you guys are keep because when you're when you become physicians, you're obviously going to have to do things that are red tape and you see it as taking away from the time you have with patients, but it's something that has to be done just to meet standards for your employer, for your hospital. So we have the same thing for the School of Medicine. Okay, and I guess now would be a good time to shift into the, the second part of the podcast we plan on touching. So since you are, you can speak to it a bit more, but you are born and raised in the Valley. We were thinking you could talk about your experiences here and how it's hot. <laughs> Especially in summer, wow. Um, but uh, we have a pretty good mix of students in our class, and I think the incoming class will be similar of uh, Valley natives. I think a little over a third of the class of our classes, and then out-of-state students also who have never been to Texas. But uh, maybe if, if you could just expand about that however you really want, and we can follow up with questions. Well, I mean, yeah, I, grew, I was born here in McAllen, um, moved away for a little bit, came back, and obviously came back again. I kept leaving and coming back. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a different area. Um, it's kind of, how would I describe it? Um, it's been described kind of like the United States was the whole world, representative of the whole world. The Valley would kind of be like a third world, world country. Mm. Um, and the reason for that is that the McAllen metropolitan area is actually the poorest metropolitan area in the whole United States, according to Forbes. And a lot of people don't know that about the area. I mean, yes, we see a lot of prosperity in some areas, but there's also a lot of poverty. And I'm sure you guys have seen that when you've gone down Operation Lone Star and you've gone to the different colonias on your um, field work for MBS and different modules. Um, but we do have a very poor population here. Um, and it's kind of strange. I um, used to teach Mexican-American studies, so like, if I go off on a tangent here, just let me know. <laughs> but the reason the Valley is also very different is because we're, if you notice, we're the biggest metropolitan area also in the South, um, in Texas at least. And we're, our next biggest metropolitan area is going to be San Antonio. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that historically is because the King Ranch is separating San Antonio and the valley, and there was no area to grow 
north from the valley and there was no area to grow south because of this ranch, which is, if you guys don't know about this ranch, it's actually bigger than the state of Rhode Island. This is how big wow. this ranch is. <laughs> so when people say things are bigger in Texas, like they're literally, we have ranches that are bigger than states here in Texas. Um, so there's a whole history about it. We do have a constant influx of immigration here. So there's a language ba barrier a lot of the time, which I know some students that have come into the School of Medicine have experienced that um, because we have this constant influx of new immigrants, so a lot of times people that have been here a while really don't need to learn the English language because they're always going to find somebody that can speak Spanish. Um, it's just the way that the area is. We have, like I said, high rates of poverty. We have a lot of migrant workers here. If you don't know what a migrant farm worker is, these are people that travel up north and during their summer months or even during the early fall, late spring to go picking in the fields in different states. They, they, they're on the migrant circuit. They go from state to state to state. And the money they make doing that is what they bring back home to make a living for the whole year. So you get a lot of young people, for example, that have to leave the school year early to go pick with their parents. And they start the school year late, so we have problems with education. Um, we also have problems with high rates of diabetes in the area and with heart disease. And again, if you want to go into Mexican-American studies, um, this actually has to do with a lot of the diet in the area. And anthropologists and different people have speculated that the reason that we have such a high rate of diabetes and a high rate of heart disease is because we have a lot of Native American or indigenous blood, and that was never part of our diet. High refined corn syrup, sugars, corn syrup was never part of the indigenous diet. So genetically, we are pre, we have a predisposition towards certain diseases within the area. Um, getting further into the medical issues in the area, you also have what's a lot of folk remedies in the area, which also, um, as physicians, you might have to deal with here. Um, I'll give you a funny story, for example. My husband is from Pennsylvania, so he has no idea what a lot of these things are, and he gets the hiccups sometimes for up to 24 hours. Like, they just will wow. not go away. Like, he will try holding his breath, he'll try drinking water sense. weird, he'll try drinking water upside down. He'll do whatever he needs to try and do to get rid of them. And I want them to be gone, too, because all I hear is the hiccup echoing through the house. Um, so there's folklore that says that if you get a piece of wet red thread and you put it on somebody's forehead, that the hiccups will go away. And at this point, I'm just so frustrated. I just go get a piece of red thread and I put it on his forehead and he's like, what are you doing to me? I'm like, just don't ask any questions. We're just going to see if this works. You know what I mean? So it didn't work. It didn't work. But um, at that point, when you're desperate, you'll try anything. But the point is a lot of our citizens here are that desperate where they don't have the access to medical care. So they will do things like turn to folk remedies, turn to things like Monsanya tea for their children, um, which is chamomile tea. Um, and, you know, they try these folk remedies. They'll try the, the wax in the ear, the smoke in the ear. If they have an ear infection. They will try what's called mal de ojo. I don't know if you guys yeah, have heard mm -hmm. the evil eye. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like somebody, like, admired you from afar and, you know, um, they, they, you have to touch them or they get, like, sick and something happens to them. Um, the funny thing is that happened to me in college and when you're desperate again, like as a college student that didn't have medical insurance, I called my mom and I said, mom, I feel really sick. I'm throwing up. And she's like, well, what happened? I said, I had these people over and they were admiring my house and they were, and she's like, oh my gosh, you have ojo, right? She's like, get an egg and rub it all over yourself. And I'm like, mom, I only have egg beaters. Like, I don't think that rubbing a carton of eggs all over myself is really, that's a little too modern, right? But it's this idea that 
I think that physicians in the area also need to understand and be sympathetic to that, that you can't automatically disregard people's beliefs, but at the same time they need treatment, but it's trying to find that marriage between the two that's kind of difficult. Yeah, and that's something we actually gained exposure to during our orientation. We had someone from this community, this, uh, I, how would you describe it? The, the Colonias? Uh, no. Curandera. A curandera, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. They came and talked to us about what they do. And uh, it, was, it was a very interesting, like, engaging conversation we had with them about how to, like you said, marry the two. Because at the same time, your patients are the boss at the end of the day. They're going to do what they want to do. And it's up to them to take your advice and whatever other advice they receive and determine what what they should do to best, you know, mm -hmm. get treated. Right. So uh, this that was that was very that was very engaging. I, I didn't I didn't know actually a lot of the things that you said prior to today. And this kind of embarrassing. <laughs> I've lived here for well, a year. But. I mean, as a physician, you know that you know, is it really going to hurt a patient to put a red thread on their baby's head and they have the hiccups? Mm -hmm. Like It's like, if you want to do that, go ahead and do yeah. that. But we might want to examine them to see what's causing this. Is it their diet? Is it something else? Um, but at the same time, a lot of these medicinal teas you have to be careful with, at this, or the treatment that they yeah. do, because they think, well, I don't have to get treatment for my diabetes or an ulcer I have on my foot because I'm doing this, or I'm putting aloe on it, or I'm doing something that Curandera told me. And Curanderas do have a lot of knowledge, and I do believe that, because I think Think that science in general, general and medicine have to explore this um, homeopathic way of treating things. But I think again, like you said, there has to be a marriage between the two. Like again, is it going to hurt if they rub a kid an egg all over their kid? Probably not, right? Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that they shouldn't see. And the Curanderos are like folk um, doctors, those folk practitioners. Yes, exactly. They they practice folk medicine, and they it's an, a, a knowledge that's acquired from generation to generation. But they're even within co the culture, we know that their curanderas have to fit certain criteria. Like they have to be trained by somebody that was trained as a curandera themselves. It's knowledge that, like I said, is passed from generation to generation, or Curanderas, like if you look at anthropological studies, they, they say that a curandera will never charge you and will never tell you, you owe me this amount of money. A real curandera is just going to accept whatever is given to them in payment. So if you get somebody that's telling you, I'm going to cure your cancer for $100, you know, you, you could probably say, well, a real curandera would never charge me. A real curandera would not approach it in this way. And real a lot of curanderas in the area have learned that they do have to refer their patients to physicians. And I think that that relationship is forming more and more as they gain knowledge and start to trust physicians and as physicians try and understand where they're coming from as well. Awesome. Very interesting well, stuff. Yeah, that's a lot of information. I learned a lot, actually. And like I said, it's kind of embarrassing because I've been here for a year. But. <laughs> well, I mean, it also comes with, with living in the area, right? And if you if you grew up with it, it's a, it's a lot different. Like in my house, I can say, like I said, I have so many experiences with this. My, I remember being four and feeling ill and my great-grandmother putting me in the formal living room that you were never allowed in because that's the nice room in the house and rubbing weeds all over me and just I'm like I have no idea what's going on but you don't argue with great grandma right just do what you got to do um but it's this idea that you know it's part of the culture and it's accepted around here 
All right, well, thank you very much for sitting down here with us today. Is there a mechanism in which you prefer students get in contact with you? Um, I can be reached. My, like I said, my office door is always open, um, but I'm on the third floor with most of the staff and administration. But if students want to reach me, they can reach me at any time at my email here at UTRGB, which is just Monica or Monica, because it's pronounced differently, um, dot Alaniz, A-L-A-N-I-Z, at utrgb.edu. I'm sure they'll get emails from you soon enough so they can add you to their <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, they'll get an email from me. So you have a survey to fill out, yeah. and then they'll know it's me. Uh -huh. <laughs> that sounds like you'd be a great resource, too, for anyone interested in Mexican-American studies or in Hispanic, Latino, specifically Mexican-American healthcare and right. history behind um, my, my PhD is actually in cultural literacy and language, so that's what my background is how I ended up it's a long story how I ended up here we can we can go into that later but yeah if they have any questions about the culture of the area or even like I know you guys said fun stuff to do but there's a lot of fun stuff to do in the valley when it's not so hot so <laughs> which is not that often once we hit December we'll get into the 70s <laughs> all right well thanks again we really appreciate it well thanks for inviting Thank me again you.